0: Good morning, church, happy Easter. This is the most exciting day of the year as a Christian, and so happy to um, celebrate it with you. Uh, This morning, we're not going to take communion, and we're also not going to take an offering. So uh, if you came this morning and you came to give, uh, there is our offering box out on the info station. You can do that if you feel so led, but we're just actually, we don't have any announcements or anything, we're just going to go right into our service, and actually at the end of today, we have one scheduled baptism that we're going to do, and this is pretty rad because we all get to celebrate uh, Angela being baptized today, but... If you feel so led or so moved by the Holy Spirit this morning to make that public declaration that you are with Jesus, that you have been buried with him in his death and raised in his resurrection, then we would love to baptize you as well. So um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. And I just want you to listen to what Paul talks about here because Paul is connecting something that is so familiar to us and maybe foreign to us at the same time. He's going to talk a lot about sleep. He's going to talk a lot about the grave, and he's going to talk about how these two connect with one another and what Jesus has done for us. And as some of you know, we've been doing a little series leading up to Easter on the symbols of Christ. So we looked at um, the, the water The meal, the cross, and this morning we're going to look at the grave. And we want to look at it more as a liturgy. How can we practice resurrection every day? How can we be reminded of the victory of Christ in just the ordinary, mundane rhythms of our life? So listen to Paul this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He says this For I, excuse me, for what I received, I passed on to you. As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Skipping down to verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, the first man, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. And then in verse 51, Listen, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with, imperish- with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then that saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Typically on a day like today, I could tell you that Jesus didn't swoon on the cross but actually truly died, and that his death was overseen by professional executioners. I could tell you he was buried in a well-known location, and yet three days later, the tomb was empty. I could tell you that women were the first to see him risen from the dead, which brought no credit to the claim in those days because of the low role of women in that society. So why mention the women at all? Because this is the way it all went down. I could tell you that 500 people saw the risen Jesus at one time. I could tell you that Jesus ate and drank, talked and walked with his closest friends and followers for 40 days after his resurrection. His appearance was not just a one-time hallucination. I could tell you that Jesus' own family members who were skeptical of him thought he was out of his mind in his earthly ministry, accepted him as the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the Savior and King of the world. After witnessing his resurrection, I could tell you that each of the apostles, excluding John, died horrific, gruesome deaths for their claim that Jesus and not Caesar was King of the world. I could tell you that people back then were not more gullible about these things than we are. That no one in the first century besides the Jews believed in resurrection or wanted it. Plato was the influencer of the day. They thought that the body was disgusting. They thought it was a prison for the soul. They couldn't wait to break out and be freed from this prison. They didn't want resurrection. The Greeks had a very low view of the body, a very low view of the afterlife. And yet, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and was king over all changed the world at the time. Now, when I think about these facts, and this is what we often talk about at Easter, like, boom, 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 boom. this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened, and this is actually what the Bible records. But you know what? This is not told us, written down, waiting for us to dust it off once a year. Oh yeah, the resurrection. Let's look at that again. I guess that's kind of important, right? No. Why is this written down for us? So that the Christian life would be one continual celebration and observance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why. The resurrection of Jesus is not just an event in history. It is that, absolutely. But it is a life to be lived. Christians are called, actually the world is called and invited by God to practice resurrection. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I love N.T. Wright. You guys know, if you come here often, I talk about N.T. Wright. Sometimes when I'm alone by myself, I call him by his first name even. Um, (laughs) But he says, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and you are now invited to belong to it. We're invited now to live out that new life, that new world that is to come because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to practice resurrection? And I said this last year, but I think that this is really important, to to accept Jesus' victory over death as a living reality. That's what it is to practice resurrection. And I think that this is both calculated and also carefree. N.T. Wright, or Tom, again, he says... Every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, every work of true creativity, when we do justice, when we make peace, when we bring healing to families, when we resist temptation to selfishness, self-fulfillment, when we seek and win true freedom, This is an earthly event in a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation and act for the world as signposts of hope, which point back to the first resurrection and forward to the second. It's calculated. We follow the teachings of Jesus. We live out the lives of Jesus. We put his life on display. And we practice this again and again and again. We practice scripture in the life of Jesus till it becomes second nature for us. But also the resurrection, is, it's, it's more than that even. It's calculated, but it's also carefree. I think about this. If the resurrection is true, then this is not my only life, nor is it my best life. But the best is yet to come. Not only is the best yet to come, but like Peter says, it is imperishable. It is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is reserved in heaven by God. God is the watchdog over our resurrection hope. Nothing can touch it, right? It's not like Wall Street, which could collapse. It's not like our own housing market, which could fall through the floor. It's nothing like that. It is absolutely safe and secure, And so this gives us a a peace and a confidence and just a carefreeness. And so since the resurrection is true, love all people liberally. This is what we find taught in the New Testament. Show kindness to everyone because God, our God, our King is kind. Forgive freely. Think the best of people. Loosen your control and worry. Give more away. Take yourself less seriously. Spend more time with people, investing in people, and less time maybe on projects. Bless the people who hate and curse you. Read another story to your children. Spend more time playing with them. Throw a great party. Plant a garden. Celebrate life liberally and freely. Today, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. That's what the resurrection is all about. Because Christ is risen from the dead, he is trampled death by death. And upon those in the tombs, bestowing life, our future is bright and glorious, and the best is yet to come. So, as I said, leading up to Easter, we've been talking about the symbols of Christ. And I believe that God wants to speak to us in the ordinary, everyday imagery and symbols that are all around us in this world. Because the ordinary is what God created. And it's where real life is happening, and God wants to use everything around us, his creation and our daily rhythms in it to bring about true spiritual formation so that we would actually practice the life of Jesus. Tish Harrison Warren from her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, says this, the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. So this is what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna talk about the grave, and how we might make the grave a daily liturgy. This is weird, okay? I know that this is weird. Like, I told Todd, I was like, I'm gonna do something different for Easter. He's like, you say that every year. (laughs) So I guess I'm doing the same thing for Easter. I'm being weird and trying to break out of the box. So let's talk about the grave, and let's talk about how we can make this thing that is actually very, just very part of humanity a rhythm of our lives, how we can make this a reminder of the hope we have in Jesus. So the grave, we're human, so death or the grave is an image or experience that isn't far from each of us. Uh, Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe that's happened recently. Maybe you had your own near-death experience, but the truth is we know death. And if you don't, at this point in your life, you just haven't lived long enough. We all know deep down that death is near and could potentially strike at any moment. We hear stories of, you know, I had a friend 30 years old collapsed in his living room of a massive heart attack. We had no idea that a 30 years old Graham would be taken to be with Jesus. No idea. Death could strike at any time. It's haphazard, it seems. Some of us try to ignore it. Others of us are constantly thinking of it and paralyzed by it. This is a quote by John Blanchard from his book, Whatever Happened to Hell? Interesting title. The current death rate, he says, is awesome. Three people die every second, 180 every minute, nearly 11,000 every hour. About 260,000 every day and 95 million every year. Death comes to young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner, the dynamic young businessman, the glamorous actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician. None can resist the moment when death will lay its hand upon them and bring all their fame and achievements to nothing. Death is no respecter of time or place. It has neither season nor perish. It can strike at any moment or day or night, on land or on sea or in the air. It comes to the hospital bed, the busy road, the comfortable armchair, the sports field, and the office. There is not a single spot on the face of the planet where it is not able to strike. Epicurus, the old Greek philosopher says, it is possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we people live in cities without walls. I, I think of, you know, guys, maybe relate to this, no Country for Old Men, Coen Brothers film. Death is just roaming, looking for life to take, looking to swallow up life. And that's how it feels for us. So that's because it's a reality. Now, the biblical image of the grave is, of course, physical. It's the ground, it's a tomb. But behind the image is deep, deep meaning in Scripture. The grave is the very antithesis of the enjoyment of life or the blessings of Yahweh, the one and only God. It is the absence of companionship, the love between man and woman, the sounds of joy and laughter, or enjoying the fruit of one's labor. This is the way it's contrasted in Scripture. Death and the grave are also seen as tyrannical monarchs over the kingdom of the dead. A trap that ensnares its prey with cords that cannot be undone. Mot was the Canaanite God and he had this ginormous mouth and oftentimes in the Psalms he actually referred to death as Mot, that he is swallowing people up. He's swallowing kingdoms and nations up. Death is pictured as prison bars that are impenetrable. So when we look at the the biblical idea of death or the grave, it is a tyrant and a thief stripping every person bare, destroying everything good in God's creation. That's that's what we see in scripture. And yet, this this is so interesting. Okay, so other nations that lived at the time of the Jews have similar writings to the Jews. Uh, the Canaanites had poetry. They had psalms. Babylonians had psalms and poetry. You know what's really interesting? Sometimes we look at it and we like, oh, look, the Jews just copied the nations around them. They're just alike. But what we actually need to do is look at not how they're alike, because they are. They lived at the same time, the same place. But how are they different? And this is really interesting. If you read through Babylonian and Canaanite poetry, they have what's called a death psalm. Every one of them has a death psalm. You know what the Hebrews don't have? They don't have a death psalm. And you know why? Because the Hebrews did not believe that death was the end. It wasn't the end of the story. And so they never incorporated it in their songs and in their poetry. The biblical writers knew of God's promise to restore all things and redeem his world. The understanding was at the end of time, the great day of the Lord, as it's called in Scripture, God would set everything right. He would raise up or resurrect the righteous to forever experience a renewed world, a world just teeming with life and beauty and fullness. Scripture pictures it as every man and woman sitting under their grapevine enjoying well-seasoned wine, delicious food. It would be a celebration that would go on and on and on while the unrighteous would be resurrected to be judged and banished from God's good world and kingdom. So righteousness would be rewarded and evil would finally be named and judged. Ezekiel, we're not there yet in our year of biblical literacy, but in the latter part of Ezekiel, he's taken out to this valley, and there's just uh, just bones, dry bones, bones that have been out in the sun for years, and they're sitting there, and God and Ezekiel have this conversation, and he says, son of man, can these dry bones live again? And he says, Lord, you know, you know that these dry bones can live again. And so in this vision that Isaac, or excuse me, Ezekiel has, the bones come together. And then the, the ligaments and sinews and all this stuff start coming on the bodies and then finally skin and every part. And so then all of a sudden you just have all of these bodies standing before Ezekiel. And the Jews took this as a picture of what God would do on the last day, that he would actually resurrect, that he would bring however you had been put in the ground. Maybe you burned, maybe your head was chopped off, and it went missing. Bummer for you, right? Well, we have a God that's big enough. He can make all things new. He can bring it all back together. Interesting, the Jews also did not cremate because they believed that the body was like a seed to be put in the ground waiting for resurrection. Anyway... Anyway, Isaiah 25 celebrates God's final victory over death. And this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lease, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lease. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering that has been cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He, remember mot. Mott? The Canaanite God? Well, Yahweh, it says, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will be wiped away. And he will take away from all the earth this brokenness. For the Lord has spoken. Now, one more, probably the most obvious Old Testament reference to resurrection is Daniel 12 2 through 3. Listen to this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. So in Scripture, death, because they didn't have this death song, because they didn't believe that death was the end, death is often spoken of in terms of sleep. First Kings 2.10, David slept with his fathers. And this is the way the Jews would refer to death. It wasn't the end. It was like a sleep that they would be awoken from at the end of time. In biblical understanding, death, though still an enemy and a tragic interruption of earthly life, it is not the end. Now let's just think about that for a minute. Death is sleep. It really is interesting how alike death and sleep are. Think about what keeps you when you sleep. I mean, I know scientists, you know, uh, neurologists look into this stuff and, you know, the, the rhythms of the brain when we sleep and all this. But, you know, when we really think about it, even behind the science, we're like, we don't actually know how our life is sustained through this. What keeps us when we sleep? Who holds you and sustains you? We display a lot of trust in sleep. There is incredible vulnerability in sleep. Sleep involves a letting go of everything. It involves a suspension of our control over things. It is a sort of death to control a death to autonomy. In one sense, we truly commit ourselves into the hand of God. Something. We trust ourselves into the sustaining care and power of a higher power. And miracle of all miracles, we awake and rise again. Only, I would say, by the sustaining power of God. And so I think, church, that there is a true liturgy here for us. Sleep is death. To be reminded when we lie ourselves down to sleep that it is the Lord who sustains us And it is the Lord who wakes us up again. And by him and by him alone, we live that new day. So hang on to that idea for a minute. So now we come to Jesus and Jesus' interaction with the grave. Now it seems to me, just reading the Bible... By the first century, which is the time of Jesus, the Jews had all but forgotten this language of death is sleep for God's people. Why do I think that? Because Jesus uses it all the time, and people are like, what is wrong with you? They're dead. He's like, oh, the little girl, she's just sleeping. And they're like, you jerk. How insensitive. Like, why would you say that? Even when Jesus is talking to his disciples about Lazarus, his dear friend, he's like, oh, Lazarus is sleeping, but I go to wake him up, and the, the mm-hmm. disciples are like, "Well, oh, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll probably get better. And Jesus is like, okay, guys, listen, he's dead. He's dead, okay? And they're like, oh, he's dead. Why did you say he was sleeping? Like, they're confused by it. But Jesus is actually using biblical language here. The Jews had forgotten, it seems, their great hope in the resurrection, The crowds laugh and jeer. Some get angry. How dare he be so insensitive? You guys know that story about Jairus? He's this man that comes to Jesus, and his daughter is sick, very sick, probably at the the very door of death. And he comes to Jesus, and he begs Jesus, please, please come to my house. If you lay your hand on my daughter, she'll be healed. And so Jesus, he gets up, and he starts moving that way. And as he's going, it says that the crowd just, just surrounded Jesus. If you've, been, if you've been to Israel, you see that these streets are very, very narrow in these cities. And you can imagine just somebody like Jesus who was healing the multitudes, teaching them, and ushering in the kingdom of God how those streets would be so crowded and it says this is exactly what's happening and so many people are kind of pawing at Jesus and then all of a sudden it says that Jesus stops and he says, hey, somebody touched me. And Peter's like, yeah, no kidding. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? And Jesus is like, no, something something different happened. I felt power go out of me. And then he finds that there's a woman who has had a flow of blood for 12 years and it was her that reached out her hand And she said, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she was healed. That moment that she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus, he takes time with her, bends down, he says, woman, you have been cleansed, you have been healed, you've been forgiven. It's this crazy moment where in in the height of, of anxiety of this father, Jesus stops and has time for this woman who would have been an outcast at that time because of her uncleanness. But Jesus stops. He takes it slow. Anyway, Jesus comes to Jairus' house. And as he gets there, they have professional mourners in the family, and they they're very good at mourning, torn clothes, rough clothing, dirt, ashes on their heads, weeping, making their faces just contorted. They're bawling, and they even have musicians that just play dissonant chords. It's a cacophony. And Jesus says, basically, why the long face? The girl is sleeping. How dare you, Jesus? Jairus has just lost his little girl. How dare you say that? And so Jesus says, put everybody out of here. Move them out of the house. And he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes into the room with the little girl. And I'm going to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And there lying in the corner, in the shadows, was a still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it is time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she had just had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry, Jesus asked. She nodded. Jesus called to her family, bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk because Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. This is what happens again and again in the life of Jesus. People die. Jesus says, No, they're only sleeping. The crowds mock and jeer, you insensitive jerk. What is wrong with you? And Jesus touches them in wonder of all wonders. They awake as though they were only sleeping and they go about their merry lives. You know, in the early church, there was an intentional shunning of the term death and the typical reaction to it because of the triumph of Jesus' resurrection. We need to rediscover that same intentional shunning of death. In Jesus, this is what the scripture would tell us, death is nothing more than a nap from which the righteous will awaken to an endless day. For those who are in Jesus, the grave becomes a positive symbol and reminder of our ultimate hope. Yes, you will have to let go of everything. You will suspend all things, your grasp on power and all that you have built for your life. You will even have to let go of your autonomy and give yourself into the hands of God. Everything that you have will be removed and only what cannot be shaken shall remain. And this is the message that if we have hope in Jesus, in his resurrection, we will not lose a thing. No, God will keep it by his sustaining power and he will raise us up again. Why? Why? Why why can God do this? this? How does this happen? It happens because of what Jesus has done. At the cross, Jesus took the judgment our sin deserves, dying in our place, taking on the devil. Killing death and its power in his death. Rising again so we could be brought to God the Father. Ascending to the right hand of God. Now having all authority and power to judge and to restore. And for all who trust in him, one day you will lay your head down for the last time and fall asleep. But you, if you are in Jesus, you will have this hope. And you will hear the voice of the Son of God say to you, My little child... Arise. It's time to get up. And you and I will open our eyes and see the glorious risen Lord. We will be awakened to an endless day, a glorious day. That is the hope we have. That we will let go of all things, just as Jesus did at the cross. Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. And God in his goodness, he will raise us up just like he did Jairus' daughter. Church, what if we use sleep as a liturgy to think on and remind us of what Jesus did for us, his death and resurrection, to think of our great hope that we have in him? What if <coughs> we actually saw death, the worst thing that could ever happen as an already defeated foe? I think through the daily rhythm of sleep, we can be reminded how the Lord Jesus underwent death for every one of us. As the scripture says that through death he might destroy the works of the devil, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And that God raised him up again and he has seated him at the right hand, ruling with all power and authority, power and authority to raise us up on the last day. When we lay down and sleep, we release ourselves to him. We surrender and suspend all control, total trust. May this remind us of our hope. May this remind us of our one comfort that we have both in life and death, that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul, both in life and death, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then when we rise the next morning, that we worship his name for his faithfulness and goodness to sustain us and resurrect us. And in all of this, we look forward to the day when the Lord will resurrect us to enjoy his new world, life without end. Church, use the rhythm of sleep to practice resurrection hope in Jesus. Amen.